Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Tuesday uh, to you and yours. Uh, it's the day after Memorial Day. It's the day after Monday. Uh, it's the day before Hump Day. Uh, awesome day and show uh, planned for you today. Uh, Delano Squires will be here and Steve Kim, uh, two of my favorite contributors of all time, uh, Delano and Steve Kim. And I have a special uh, discussion for us mapped out about Memorial Day, which was yesterday. Uh, and Delano has written a column about Christian nationalism and we'll address that with Delano. Steve Kim will be here to talk about the sports world. This Tommy Pham, I don't know if you guys saw this late last week, slapped Jock Peterson over a fantasy football. Uh, Gabe Kepler, the manager of the San Francisco Giants, he's taking a knee or not coming out for the national anthem uh, until he feels better about the country. And I'm gonna, what's up with everybody from San Francisco? We'll get into that, and, and so, but I want to start with my Memorial Day uh, message and try to put in perspective uh, <clears throat> what's going on in this country. Uh, so let's start a fire there, bring in Delano to help me fan those flames, and uh, we'll get this uh, week rolling right now. All right, 157 years ago, Freed American black people inspired the Memorial Day celebration. At a park in Charleston, South Carolina, approximately 10,000 Americans, led by black school children and church leaders, gathered to honor the sacrifice of 251 Union soldiers buried at the site of an outdoor Confederate prison camp. It was May 1st, 1865, just three weeks after General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox and three months after Charles Macbeth, the mayor of Charleston, surrendered his city to Union forces. A spirit of gratitude triggered the outpouring of remembrance and desire to give Union soldiers a proper burial. Three years later, John Logan, the Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, a fraternity of Union soldiers, proclaimed May 30th as Decoration Day. A hundred years later, Congress renamed it Memorial Day. The origin of Memorial Day is more important today than perhaps at any time in America's history. It highlights a sad and tragic pivot in American culture. It speaks to black Americans' unique and powerful influence on the zeitgeist. America's shift from a culture of gratitude to entitlement can be analyzed and explained by a study of the attitude of black people. The Marxist forces seeking to topple American exceptionalism perverted the history, identity, and minds of black Americans. They turned this country's strength black Americans' faith-based journey toward freedom into a weakness. They turned the African-American journey into a narrative art that damned this country and its founding principles rather than one that celebrated America and the brilliance of the founding documents. Black Americans' pursuit of freedom caused this country to live up to its highest ideals and Christian values. Black men of faith, 
from Richard Allen, the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, to Frederick Douglass, the slave turned abolitionist, to Booker T. Washington, the educator and entrepreneur, to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. They all stood as this nation's moral compass. The left undermined the black man, eviscerating his authority in the home with government assistance and financially rewarding him for betraying any allegiance to morality. The history of black people has been redefined as a retelling of tragedy, oppression, and white supremacy victimization. This new narrative is focused on creating a sense of entitlement and inspiring other Americans to follow suit. It's worked beautifully. We've seen the formula work across popular culture. Nike rose to dominance, selling Air Jordans to black inner city drug dealers. The prevailing sentiment in fashion is to win the wallets of black consumers and white consumers will follow. Black people made gratitude cool in 1865 the same way we've made entitlement cool in 2022. Everybody is in constant search of victimhood. It's the easiest path to power. It explains why Rachel Dolezal and Sean King renounced their whiteness to identify as black. I've seen it happen within my own peer group. A former white friend of mine took on his mother's maiden name so he could benefit from being mixed race. He spent his first 35 years on earth content as a white man. Now he's not. He's part of an oppressed minority group, which makes him more valuable in the workplace. A couple of weeks ago, the comedian Bill Maher wondered why so many American young black people are identifying as gay or trans. Take a listen to Bill Maher and I'm gonna explain why this is happening. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America <coughs> seems to be roughly doubling every generation. <coughs> According to a recent Gallup poll, less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do, 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. <laughs> Gender fluid, kids are fluid about everything. If kids knew what they wanted to be at age eight, the world would be filled with cowboys and princesses. <laughs> I wanted to be a pirate. Thank, thank God nobody took me seriously and scheduled me for eye removal and peg leg surgery. It's not a mystery. Being gay, being trans, being bisexual, being some other identity than white has benefit. Being gay, being trans, it qualifies you for entitlement. Entitlement is the ultimate goal of American culture right now. Victimhood and entitlement. If you're a victim, if you're a member of an oppressed group, you're entitled to sympathy, jobs, promotions. Hey, my God, you're transgender? Let's make you the health, the assistant health secretary. Hey, you're gay? Let's make you the head of transportation, the secretary of transportation. It, it's, it's not 
a mystery what's going on here. We've been incentivized to adopt all these different identities in search of entitlement. Gratitude is out the window. Americans are in a race for privilege. We used to race towards freedom and we were extremely thankful for the men who protected it. Now we're locked in a death race for, unde for the undeserved privilege we think someone else benefited from, a privilege we pretend we despise. We don't despise privilege, we covet it. Worse, we don't recognize or honor the privilege of being born an American. Instead of falling to our knees to thank God for raising ancestors who sacrificed everything for our freedom, we waste our time on social media trying to analogize our oppression to people who actually suffered injustice. That's how a millionaire major league baseball player feels racially insulted when an opponent calls him Jackie Robinson. That's how LeBron James decided someone spray painting the N-word on his back gate of his mansion in Brentwood made him feel like Emmett Till's mother when she discovered that her 14-year-old son in 1955 was brutally, beat, brutally beaten and killed. LeBron James analogized himself to Emmett Till's mother. This is lunacy, but this is what this entitlement and privilege has done to us. The desire for entitlement and privilege is yet another sign of our cultural decay, our secular pivot. We've abandoned our biblical values and principles of gratitude and forgiveness and adopted entitlement and privilege. Memorial Day has far less meaning today. Many Americans don't even know its purpose, the celebration of servicemen lost in battle. Another leftist comedian, John Stewart, complained this weekend about our lack of reverence for Memorial Day. He said, quote, it's hard not to be, it's hard not to be here today and not get frustrated again because as I look out in the crowd, I see the same thing I always see, veterans and their families and caregivers. But where are the American people? This is Memorial Day weekend. The American people are somewhere feeling sorry for themselves. The American people are preparing for Juneteenth, the national holiday in remembrance of the George Floyd riots. That's sarcasm. Actually, Juneteenth is a remembrance that black slaves in Texas were the last to be freed by Union soldiers. It became a national holiday two years ago in the aftermath of George Floyd. Juneteenth is a celebration of oppression. Memorial Day is a celebration of sacrifice and an expression of gratitude toward those who made that sacrifice. Think it through. This is where our culture has gone. We're all on the hunt for our entitlement. How can I be a part of a victimized group? How can I demand that America owes me something? We've come so far from President Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We've done a complete 180 on that. And now everybody is looking to make themselves a part of a marginalized 
oppressed group so they can say, you know what, I'm owed something. What's America going to do for me? What job or promotion am I going to get? What sympathy is going to rain down on me because I'm part of an oppressed group? And we're looking at people reject the color of their skin, reject their uh, identity as men and women, reject their genitals so they can be a part of an oppressed group. America has gone nuts. We have a mental illness crisis across the board. We can sit from mass shootings to this mass hunt for entitlement. We've lost our minds and we wonder why yesterday, John Stewart's where is everybody? How come no one celebrating Memorial Day? Bill Maher, hey, why is everybody, why is 20% of young people claiming to be gay or bisexual or transgender? Because we reward them for it. All right, trying to do a tighter show today, so I'm going to bring in Delano and get the conversation a bit smarter uh, and better. Delano, uh, welcome back to the show. I'm, I want to I want to start here because you know th- there was a lot that I, I said in that mono and that fire starter. But one of the most interesting things I, I think is this idea that people recognize there's a long history of Black Americans defining the culture, the tenor, the 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 zeitgeist of America, and I think the enemies of America have recognized that and are actually using black people to set America against itself. And, and, and that this has been strategic, and I, you know, I, I wasn't trying to be flippant, but I used Nike as an example, is they overtook the whole shoe market by capturing the minds of black youth and the rest of America followed. And, and I think the left recognizes this far better than the right and conservatives and use it to, to manipulate and influence American culture. Am I, am I crazy for thinking that? No, not at all, Jason. I think um, to your point, uh, American history, good, bad, and ugly, has been used and weaponized in large part to mobilize a significant part of the black, you know, electorate to be a part of the left's, you know, um, infantry as it seeks to engage in culture war against against the country. So, um, to, as you were saying in your monologue, you, you take a, a history which really points to the indelible mark that black people in this country have made on on every part of American culture and politics you know, science, you know, entertainment, sports, um, all different parts of the co- country. And instead of having that produce a sense of, of pride, right, in terms of, hey, we, we, we are one of the groups that is most um, responsible for building the country that we have now, 
we, we the left turns that into um, an opportunity to undermine the country and say, look, it's, it's not about, hey, black people, it's not about what you or your ancestors did. It's about what white people um, in centuries long, you know, long past, it's about what white people have done to black people. That That is what uh, determines what it means to be black in America. So in effect, what they have done is convince black folk to be a secondary character in our own autobiography in this country. So that that is why you have, you know, people on the left who think that they're experts on race and history, but they still use the term Uncle Tom to describe uh, the bad guy, right? Whereas Uncle Tom in, in, in the novel was a man who was so uh, committed to uh, freedom that he chose death rather to, than inform on two runaway slaves. Uh, and the people who use that term as a pejorative to describe you know, black folk who believe in self-sufficiency and believe in agency um, do so while thinking that they're the ones who know about history. So I, I agree with you to the extent that um, a lot of those contributions are erased and what we get and what we've gotten certainly from since 2020, right, since George Floyd's death is the notion that the country is inherently racist, its flag, its anthem, its symbols, its holidays are all rooted in white supremacy and therefore all of those things, the things that really make any nation, right, its history, its symbols, all of those things need to be torn down and new things need to to uh, crop up to replace those things. So instead of, you know, the, the stars and stripes, now we need the the ever growing sort of LGBTQIA2S plus flag with the brown and the black stripes to, to indicate people of color who are in that community. Like that, that is the new flag that they want to raise above every uh, state house, courthouse, uh, and, and, and overseas institution that represents America. Delano, what infuriates me is that we have a right, and, and not in any way to diminish anyone else, but we have a right to pound the table, stand up, wave the flags. We did this. Mm -hmm. Our relentless journey for freedom pushed America to a level of greatness that's been unprecedented across the planet, perhaps in the history of time. We did this, we should be taking pride. And somehow we've been tricked into saying that instead of taking pride in that and satisfaction, we've been tricked into believing we contributed nothing other than mm. being a punching bag for white people. And it's just not the truth and, and that's why I, I sit here and I take a lot of pride in this country. I grew up as a child thinking about how can I be Martin Luther King Jr.? How can I mm. be Booker T. Washington? How can I be Frederick Douglass? And, and, and how can I have that kind of impact on America that those men had? And, and you can throw Abe Lincoln and you know, the founding fathers in that group as well. But as a black kid, I got I thought about Frederick Douglass and mm -hmm. Booker T and, and, and Martin Luther King. We should be taking great pride in our role here in this country rather than 
allowing the left to use us as a symbol of everything that's allegedly wrong with this country. It's infuriating to me as a black man. We are being men, and I'm talking about specifically as men. Our contribution is being eviscerated from one of the greatest things that's ever happened in the history of the planet, and, and we seem to be good with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your, your, um, your assessment. And as somebody, you know, and I've said this before on the show, you know, my parents came to this country in the late 70s, early 80s. So in many respects, as, as a citizen, you know, I, I'm an adopted son, right? My, my, I'm an engrafted branch to sort of use biblical language. So my, my family history does not go back as far as, as yours does or my wife's does. But even as an adopted son, you know, when I think about being an American citizen, I said, I, I feel comfortable laying claim to all of this history. Uh, and, and certainly the, the history that was created by people who, who look like me, because the school I went to in Queens, we, we stood up every morning. We put our, you know, our hands over our hearts. We, you know, said the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, we also sung Lift Every Voice and Sing, right, which people have, have now sort of is colloquially known as the Black National Anthem. But the entire purpose of the exercise was to say, you know, th this is, you know, if you are a citizen of this nation, regardless of how long you've been here, this is your country. And if you want this to be a country, you know, in, in 50, 100, 200 years, you have to respect it. Um, because if you try to tear it down, you won't, ha you won't have anything left. It's the same thing. It's the same way I think about, about families, right? You don't get to choose your family. You're born into the family you're born into. Um, good, bad, and ugly, right? And if, you're, if you are on a mission from the time you're born to destroy your family because of what, a, what one of your ancestors or contemporaries have done, for that matter, um, then you will no longer have a family name to live by. Uh, and, and that's not something that I think is wise because I, I, can't, I can't think of a single institution that people hate that they simultaneously thrive in. So whether that's a marriage, a church, uh, a job, a country, a family. Um, if you hate the thing that you are a part of and that in some respects defines you, you are always going to be on the brink of existential crisis. And I think that, that is what you see for a, a lot of black Americans. I won't say most, but particularly the ones who, who, tend, to, who tend to subscribe to this ideology is that there's a, you can see the tension. They, they get upset when, for instance, conservatives talk about um, our country, or true Americans, or true patriots, and they say, well, that doesn't include us. And then the conservatives say, well, no, it does include you, because you're an American citizen. And then they say, well, I don't want it to include me, because this country is racist and built on white supremacy. So on, on both hands, it's like, you know, I, I'm not a part of the country, but anytime you say I am a part of the country, I reject it, because the country is white supremacist. And, and that, that type of thing just leads a person down a deep, deep path of of uh, sort of self-destruction and, and, and division, to be quite frank. Delano, we talked a little bit off air. I know you weren't a fan of my use of Juneteenth at the end of my mono, at the end of my column. Elaborate why. Sure. It, it, it's uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the reasons was sort of, you know, a, a sort of technical writing point. It just came it came right in, and I didn't, I didn't see it coming in terms of the lead up. But the more substantive point was, I think it is always important to clearly delineate the difference between um, something like an event, 
uh, or in this respect, in this instance, a holiday, right? So to delineate between the phenomenon and, and how it is used by a particular group. So, you know, my wife is from Texas, so she grew up celebrating Juneteenth, and that's been part of our family history for a long time. Um, so I was familiar with it through her. Now, I grew up in New York, so I never heard of Juneteenth. And now with somebody who lives in D.C., I know of this area's version of Juneteenth, which is called Emancipation Day, which is when the District of Columbia, the nation's capital, um, you know, celebrates emancipation, which is April 15th. But what ended up happening, and, and I said this, you know, I've said this to you and I, and I said this a little earlier, is that when you say your nation is built on racism and white supremacy, then you need new symbols, you need new holidays, you need a new flag. And Juneteenth was used in the wake of George Floyd's death two years ago as part of a cultural reparations package to the broader society that says, hey, we recognize that July 4th is, uh, to, to paraphrase Colin Kaepernick, is a holiday that celebrates white supremacy. So we'll give you know, black folks uh, a better holiday that really celebrates freedom. And what ends up happening, or what happened, is that uh, a holiday that had sort of regional roots that's been celebrated by people quite peacefully for a long time ends up getting pulled into the culture war and used as a cudgel to smash the heads of people who, who love this country and respect its its historical symbols and, and flags. So it, it's less about Juneteenth as it often is. Um, and we've Jason, we've talked about this as it relates to, for instance, January 6th, right? We don't deny that something really bad happened at the Capitol. But when January 6th is used as a pretext to strip Americans of their you know, constitutional rights and ability to protest the government, then that becomes the main problem. And in the same way, when Juneteenth is used as sort of the, the counterweight to July 4th and says, well, no, Juneteenth is the real Independence Day, that's when, you, that's when it becomes a, a divisive symbol um, rather than one that should be unifying for everybody that believes in freedom and liberty. All right, I want to pivot to the column you wrote, uh, which was spectacular and I think has great synergy with what, what my mono and what I wrote about today. And it was your take on this whole Christian nationalism thing. Mm. The Associated Press wrote a piece last week about Christian nationalism and, and they try to portray Christianity as, you know, an outgrowth of white supremacy. And uh, the, when I read the AP story, I was pissed off, sent it to you, and because <laughs> I wanted to know if you had some, and sure enough, you did have some thoughts. So what, what, what is your take on, and again, the, the Associated Press is supposed to be objective, nonpartisan, obviously it's not, uh, but your take on their framing of Christianity as highly politicized, uh, you know, I think they insinuate that it's racist. Anyway, your take. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the AP story is one of a number of stories, particularly in the recent months and, and really recent years, that's been discussing Christian nationalism, you know, as, as one of the major sort of political and cultural um, issues that people need to pay attention to. Um, my, my problem with the way the AP handles it is the same that, you know, is the same problem I have with most other outlets, which is 
when they say Christian nationalism, they, they tend to mean the fusion of um, a conservative sort of theological approach with, you know, government and, and public policy, right? So um, the subtext of that and, and the, the meaning that's inferred, and you hit on this, is that it's really white conservative Christian evangelical nationalism. That's, if they were to really title it out and, and say it completely, that's the way they would frame it. Um, and I think that's embodied by you know, one, one woman who's a historian who wrote the, the book, recent book, Jesus and John Wayne, right? Who says that uh, white conservative evangelicals have sort of corrupted the Christian faith by attaching to it you know, notions of American exceptionalism and patriarchy and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, one of my issues is that that definition of Christian nationalism does not take into account the way that liberals use, you know, biblical pas uh, uh, passages and scriptures to advance their political agenda, which is what I call, you know, the, the, the theology of Jesus and Elton John, right? So when, when I see someone like Senator Cory Booker at a political rally and he's saying, he's quoting the scripture that says, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and, you know, faith without works is dead and then takes a step further and says, and you can't just sit on the sidelines. You need to activate your faith. You need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Um, it's the same, again, this, this, the liberal use of, of you know, scriptures is what allows someone like Raphael Warnock, who's a senator, and also the pastor of the church that Dr. King used to pastor, to say, you know, I'm a pastor, but I believe that, you know, abortion is a completely acceptable uh, practice, and that there's not enough room in, an, in you know, uh, a room where a birthing person is about to have a baby for the, the woman the federal government and her doctor, right? So what liberal Christians do is take uh, biblical passages that have clear meanings and they use the Bible to distort the definitions that the scriptures themselves apply to marriage, to the nature of male and female, um, to the beauty and blessing of children. And, and that's one of my issues with the way corporate media frames Christian nationalism. Um, the second one, really quick, is that, and, and this is something that I pointed out in the piece, is that it, it, it's interesting because conservatives and liberals, respectively, actually take the same approach to both how they approach uh, Christianity, the definition of Christianity, and what it means to be a nation. So conservatives typically say, um, the designer is the definer. So whoever authored the text gets to decide and define what the text means. So you interpret the Bible based on the common understanding, the common meaning of what a text means, and that itself is based on the intent of the author. Same thing with the Constitution. Obviously, you know, uh, with the caveat that the Constitution is made by mere mortals, whereas the Scripture is, you know, uh, God breathed and inspired, um, uh, God breathed and inspired text that's you know created over you know centuries. The Christian left takes this again a different approach. They say both the Bible and the Constitution 
are living documents that have no fixed meaning for any extended period of time and that are basically a mashup of Aesop's fables and Mesopotamian mythology so that whatever meaning you want something to mean, you can read it into the text as long as you as an individual believe it to be so. So that is how we get, again, clear, consistent biblical teaching on what constitutes a marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. The left sprinkles some love is love, love fairy dust on it and out pops two men, two women, three men, a woman, and eventually, you know, some other permutations that I won't get into right now. So I think all of those difficulties with defining Christianity and nationalism make the use of the term Christian nationalism completely suspect at this point in time. And I know I'm beating a dead horse and we, we virtually every week we talk about this, but when I'm looking at the mainstream media to demonize Christianity, mm. I, I just wonder when, and I'm going to envelope it all into the entire discussion we've been having, is, is when are black people, and particularly those who say they have a Christian faith, when are we going to say enough is enough? That, hey, you've taken our own individual history and made it a nightmare and a tragedy and told our kids that our, our narrative arc, our existence here in America is a nightmare and a tragedy. And now you've taken the religion that helped liberate us and lead us to freedom, you've defined it as racist and white supremacy, and you're now remaking Christianity into something very secular. Mm. And when are we like enough is enough? This is crazy. This is it's an abomination. It's it's or have we been so disconnected from faith and connected to politics that maybe we never snap out of it? I mean, Jason, that's a great question. That that's one of the things we covered um, last week. You know, when I talked about you know my my piece around the black church and abortion. And that the Washington Post article, the original article, not only included churches that claim to be, you know, pro-choice slash pro-abortion, but also churches that claim to be pro-life, but didn't want to take public positions on the issue of abortion because they didn't want to get lumped in with white evangelical conservatives. So it wasn't about, you know, um, it wasn't about the belief that, you know, the scriptures uh, support or approve of abortion. It was more so, I don't want to be found guilty by association. I don't want to be lumped in with, with the Trumpers or, you know, other conservative evangelicals. So one of the questions I think, I'll, I'll, this is for every Christian, but we're talking about black folk right now. One of the questions we have to answer is, for black Christians, um, am I black first? both in terms of, specifically in terms of primacy. What is most important in my identity? Is it being black or is it being Christian? If it's being black, that means that ultimately, I see myself as more aligned with the, the radical, atheist, Marxist, lesbian, feminists who started BLM, right? Who engage in divination, who, ch who try to channel spirits at, at some of these events by saying people's names. I see myself 
as more in line with that group than white conservative evangelicals with whom I may disagree from time to time politically, but who say that they share my faith, right? The common faith that we both have in, in, in Jesus Christ. So at a certain point, we're going to have to answer that question. Um, and sometimes it, it'll have to be put in such clear, stark turn, uh, terms because uh, the, the time for choosing is right now. And if, you're, if you are a black Christian that says, no, I'm casting my lot with Black Lives Matter and the women who started it, then you're going to end up in a very, very different place. That is a very broad road. And, and my belief is that that road leads to destruction because you can't say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I believe that God the designer is also the definer and then use his book to to pervert and invert the definitions that he created and, and jason i use this example in the piece in terms of you know my technology you know everybody has a smartphone and i said you know steve jobs you know the the, the technology that he created is the mat the physical manifestation of the ideas that he had in his mind he designed every part of my iphone with an intended purpose in mind. Now, if I use that phone as a Frisbee or a coaster or a paperweight, um, I could do that, but that degrades and distorts the purpose that he had in mind for his creation. And, and I think we should give God, at the very least, as much reverence in how he designed his creation as we do Steve Jobs. So people who say, you know, I look at what the scriptures say about, again, male and female, and I say, oh, that's, that's passe, that's antiquated. No, I believe that birthing persons is where it's at. I believe that the term female penis is a real thing, and that people like Leah Thomas, right, when they say that uh, transgender women are women, I believe that those people should be uh, supported and encouraged. And, I, and I'm here to say you can't do that because eventually, um, the designer and how they design their creation will will have its way. Thank you, Delano. Great job as always. Thank I, you, Jason. I, I want to end on this. I want to end on this note in terms of speaking directly. Just part of what I'm trying to explain to everyone, not just blacks, white, everybody, is that, and, and I think I said it in the in the fire starter in the mono, but the most compelling narrative in the history of the planet is the African-American journey. People are fascinated by it. The black American journey. Our journey from slavery all the way to the presidency with half-black Obama. You, you, you know, just to from the TV show Roots and how many people watch that across all racial demographics, all people are fascinated by the black American journey. It's, it's in the country that matters the most and it's just a fascinating story. And that has given us black people the, the fascination with our story and our journey in this particular country. It's given us outsized influence over the culture. And so what I'm saying to conservatives, Christians, believers of any race, 
It's like the left has figured this out. And they use the African-American journey and narrative to bring down this country. And so conservatives, believers, we're going to have to understand, like, how can we use the same narrative justifiably, righteously, accurately to celebrate and uplift America? and to send it another direction. That has been our history. That has, again, I started by talking about Richard Allen. That's in the 1790s. He started the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And he was basically the moral compass of his time. Frederick Douglass, slave to uh, abolitionist, Booker T. Washington, Dr. Martin Luther King, all of these black men standing as the moral compass and pushing America to its highest ideals and values, making us live up to those things, made America great. And so there is no victory in abandonment because trust me, I get it. I see so many, black people's minds, particularly black women, captured by the left, captured by the Marxists, captured by the people that want to demonize this country. It makes you, well, we just need to give up on them. No, we don't. Because those people, or people that look like them, are what made America great. And we need to fight for them to to reawaken their Christian values, make them choose their faith and their identity in Christ over this political identity that's been handed to them and forced upon them and that the left guards and has overseers out there making, you don't do nothing to disagree with or object to leftist Marxist ideology. We gotta free those people mentally if we want to save America. It's the only way. I want to tell you guys about my good friends at Good Ranchers. It's getting hot outside, and that's just from all, that's not just from all the grills firing up. Summer is upon us, and if you're looking for the perfect cuts of meat to cook this year, look no further. Good Ranchers is the place to get American beef, chicken, and seafood this summer. They sell 100% American meat and ship it right to your door, and right now, They're giving away two free 18-ounce Prime Center cut ribeyes to every person that uses my code, FEARLESS. That's over two pounds of Prime ribeye steaks just added to your order at no cost. With Father's Day almost here and the summer stretching out before us, what's not to love? This is not the time to wait. Claim your ribeyes today before they run out. This is a limited stock item, first come, first serve, and you want to be first when it comes to good ranches. They deliver the best of American farms and ranches to your door. Make sure you take time today and right now and go to goodranchers.com backslash fearless or use my code fearless at checkout to get your two free 18 ounce ribeyes. Start the summer off right with good ranchers, American meat delivered. You know why you need to support good ranchers. They support you. All right, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. Next.
right, welcome back. Time for uh, the Korean Cosell, uh, Steve Kim, to join us. Uh, Steve's going to help me go through some of the uh, sports stories of the weekend. Uh, Gabe Kapler, the manager of the San Francisco Giants, has decided to uh, sit out the national anthem, although he did participate yesterday because of Memorial Day. Uh, Let's get some context here and listen to Gabe's explanation uh, for why he's skipping the national anthem. I don't plan on coming out for for the anthem going forward until I feel like um, there's, I I feel better about the direction of our country. So that'll be the step. I don't I don't expect it to to move the needle necessarily. It's just something that um, I feel strongly enough about to to take that step. Steve, uh, my first take on all of this is I don't think it's a coincidence that the guy is the manager of the San Francisco Giants. Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. We have to recognize that there is a problem in Northern California and that if Gabe Kapler or Colin Kaepernick played anywhere outside of Northern California, outside of San Francisco, San Francisco is a very revolutionary place, it's a Marxist place, it's an LGBTQ place, it's a place of entitlement and hostility towards America, it's a, it's a petri dish for discontent with the country and I, I just don't, it's not a coincidence that the manager of the San Francisco Giants, the former quarterback of the uh, San Francisco 49ers, have identity issues and meltdowns and have a problem with participating in the national anthem. It's San Francisco, it's Northern California, it's the place for, that creates nut jobs and anti-American sentiment. So you're saying it's Gabe Kirkaplanik? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think there is something to that. Here's the thing, he, he actually explained his position uh, he was very measured, held his emotions, had enough respect to come out for the national anthem on Monday, which was Memorial Day. Um, with that being said, his comments were interesting when he said the direction of America. Okay, so let's go right there. Does that mean in relationship to Uvalde and unfortunately those young, innocent kids whose lives were lost? Is it specifically about that or did that push you over the borderline of what you could take. Because my question is, does quote unquote, the direction of the country also relate to the economy, to inflation, to the Southern border, to the food crisis, supply chain difficulties, all of which have come under the direction. I believe that Kapler is a Democrat. I read that somewhere. Um, That's under the direction of a president that was elected by 81 million people, from what I've been told, one of which is you, Gabe. So again, I, I would hope that somebody asked Gabe Kapler, um, sir, with all due respect, let's say four of those five things that I just mentioned improve. Would that then to you represent 
an improvement in the direction of our country? That's what question that I want to have. Does it encapsulate everything or just the latest event? I think you raise a, a, a very good question. I, I'm, I'm going to double down again on my whole San Francisco is the problem. San Francisco is the headquarters for smash and grabs. San Francisco, headquarters for homelessness. San Francisco, the headquarters for LGBTQ issues. San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's headquarters. Mm -hmm. COVID, mass mandates. San Francisco, uh, Steve Kerr. I, I, I forgot to even throw him in uh, with the Golden State Warriors, another anti-American nut job yeah. right there in the Bay Area. By the time you throw Steve Kerr, Colin Kaepernick, Gabe Kapler all together, it's not a coincidence. It's all happening right there in San Francisco. San Francisco is a, is, is a enemy of the United States of America. We have to acknowledge that. These social media apps that are all based in Northern California, we have to acknowledge they're anti-American. That entire region, I've gone over it. I'm not gonna try to drag you all the way into everything that I've gone into. But if you understand the history of San Francisco and you tie the whole conversation I've been having today about this sense of entitlement and everybody looking for, hey, how was I wronged? How was I oppressed? Oh, Bill Maher saying, how come uh, uh, all these kids are identifying as gay or bisexual or transgender? It's all San Francisco. It's all Northern California. It's their social media apps that are baiting all of this, looking for entitlement, anti-American sentiment. We got a problem in San Francisco that needs to be addressed head on. And, and, and Steve Kerr, Gabe Kapler, Colin Kaepernick are all just symbols. They're, these guys are all rich making millions yeah. of dollars, running around screaming about how horrible America is. And, and two, you got two of the three guys talking about they won't stand for the national anthem and won't participate until they feel better about this country. They feel so terrible living in San Francisco and that guilt and that entitlement that rules that city and that whole area, that's, it's perverting and corrupting the minds of these people. It, it, it makes me sick. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Bay Area provides safe harbor for this type of philosophical mindset. And, you know, look, the San Francisco that Tony Bennett once famously sung about, that no longer exists. And absolutely, if Gabe Kapler was the manager of the Kansas City Royals or maybe the Cincinnati Reds, again, as there's that old phrase, this wouldn't play in Peoria. Well, San Francisco certainly is not Peoria. It really is a certain type of urban decay that exists within that community. If you watch some of the videos on YouTube, there's a lot of businesses now um, that simply cannot operate uh, at a normal level the last couple of years. Also, I believe Gavin Newsom is from the Bay Area. He has been hatched out of this uh, region of the country. 
But there is an economic stimulus the last couple of years about being anti-American. There's certainly a trend. It's become very hip. It's been become very, very cliche. Guys have tried to make the names on it. And it got me to thinking, Jason, as I was preparing for this, and I'm talking to you now. Yesterday on Memorial Day evening, I went to go watch the Top Gun Maverick reboot sequel. And it was great. And I'll tell you why. And I know a lot of people have talked about it. They've tweeted about it and they've spoken about it. The really enjoyable part about that movie is it was pro-America. I mean, it was our American might, our American ingenuity. I mean, I'm looking at my tax dollars go through with multi-million dollar jets. It made me proud. It was downright jingoistic. And it paid tribute to an all-time great movie, and they didn't woke it up. There was no purple hair lady that was the general of the war. No. The military folks, they diversified it a little bit. I get that. I'll grant them that. But it looked like what the military, at least the U.S. military, you would think it should look like. These were strong, healthy, proud people that loved our country and defended it. Was it in fiction? Yes. Was it over-dramatized at points? Yes. But... What was really interesting, uh, Jason, is that we went to about the 5.36 o'clock showing. So the theater was about two-thirds full. When the movie ended, people applauded. People genuinely enjoyed it. It was a feel-good movie. It was like the chicken soup for the soul in terms of cinematic experiences. I guarantee you, in the Bay Area, specifically San Francisco, that movie probably doesn't get as high a Rotten Tomatoes rating. I'm actually going to see it uh, uh, later today, so I look forward to and, and I think we're going to talk about it on Wednesday, so okay. I appreciate that preview. I, I, Steve, I want to transition to uh, Tommy Pham, who slapped Jock <laughs> Peterson. Tommy, the, I think the, the, Tommy pays for the Cincinnati Reds, I believe, outfielder. Uh, he's involved in some little fantasy football dispute with Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson handled this very well. He's captured on uh, he's captured on tape getting hit by Tommy Pham. Let, let's watch the Jock Peterson. I think we got some comments here from Jock Peterson kind of explaining what happened. We were in a fantasy, fantasy league together. Uh, I put somebody, a player, on the injured reserve when they were listed as out and um, added another player uh, and then um, uh, there was a text message in the group saying that I was cheating uh, because I was stashing players on my bench and then uh, I don't know, I looked up the rules and sent a screenshot of the rules, how it says that when a player is ruled out, you're allowed to put him on the IR, and uh, that's all I was doing. And then uh, it just so happened that he had a player, uh, Jeff Wilson, who was out, and he had him on the IR, and I said, you literally have the same thing on your team, on your bench. And then I guess he was in two leagues, and in one of them he was on the IR and one of them he wasn't. So maybe that was a confusion. But on the ESPN league we were in, it, it was listed as out. So it's like it's, it feels very similar to what I did. Uh, and that was basically that, all of it. There's not much more to it. <laughs> but outside of that, it's a simple explanation. <laughs> Jeez. 
I, I I gotta give Jock credit. He he took the slap, didn't react. He handled it the way Chris Rock handled it. Gave a pretty good explanation, but I, I Tommy Fan, what's going on? He's got suspended for three games. He he didn't back down in his post suspension comments. He acts like he was justified in doing it. Uh, I don't. I felt like he should have been suspended for a week. I don't think it should have been three games. I think this is a dangerous precedent that we keep seeing. Uh, guys think that I got some disagreement. Let me walk up on stage at the Oscars and slap somebody. Let me go walk up on someone in pregame and slap them. This seems a little crazy, and I think Major League Baseball should have drawn a little harsher line in the sand. Well, now, wait a minute, Whitlock. If that's the ESPN League that was in dispute, they need to bring in Matthew Berry to mediate this. But it just brings about this thing. You know, in the National Football League for years, uh, teams have been accused, especially at the end of training camp, of stashing players on IR that they like, but they don't have room for on the roster. There's always accusations thrown about. But I, I never heard of a story of Bobby Beathard slapping Tech Schramm. These guys actually did it over a fantasy league. Think about that. It actually brings about the popularity of football as a whole. Because I guarantee you, there are no football players that ever sit around at warm-ups and say, hey, is Cody Bellinger on the 15-day disabled list? I need to take him off my team. But think about this, Jay. I played baseball. Uh, I was a pretty, like, slightly above-average baseball player at Montebello High School. We had a decent league. We had guys that actually went to Division One, played some Major League Baseball. But I was very, very extraordinarily average. So I was really into baseball. Now, bean brawls happen a lot, or sometimes the Major Leagues. Guys throw at each other's head, bench is clear, there's raw feelings. When was the last time you saw one of those situations happen where the next day anyone slaps each other? These guys slap, got into an altercation. <laughs> over fantasy football. Think about that. They weren't arguing over, hey, your guy threw at my guy and we got thrown back. And we're... No, no, no. They were like, hey, you're cheating in fantasy football. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> it blows, it boggles the mind, actually. <laughs> and I, we didn't show it, but there's some little silly meme that was really non-offensive that Jock Peterson had put in their group chat that sent this Tommy Pham over the edge and it, it just speaks to me. Tommy Pham, despite being a professional athlete, d despite earning a lot of money, looking good, the guy's very insecure and he has no emotional control. If all it takes is some little meme to send him over the top and to, to be this classless, that guy needs some help. Steve, I'm gonna throw a little bit of a curveball. Uh, we're gonna go straight to our approval rating. Mm on Gabe Kapler, because I'm running a little bit behind schedule today. Uh, so uh, let's get ready for the approval rating. Uh, this will be very interesting uh, how we come down here on Gabe Kapler, manager of the San Francisco Giants. Look, last year he was manager of the year, I believe, in the National League. Uh, I think they won 107 games, the most in the major leagues last year. This year, they're all, I think they're 26 and 21, uh, above 500, not off to the, the kind of start they were a year ago. So I'll give him a 19 in job performance. You know what? I'm not too far off. I was looking at his overall record. He's never had a terrible year. It always seems to be pretty good. I believe he's an analytics-driven manager. Of course, they all are nowadays. 
but uh, he gets his guys to perform, and the Major League Baseball season is a marathon. I get the sense the Giants will be right in this thing again. I gave him a 20, Jason. Yeah, he's got, I think, the youngest staff in all of professional baseball. He's kind of known for having guys on his coaching staff who are still young enough to be players, uh, and it's working for him. Uh, character, I'm, I'm not high on. I'm not going to be incredibly down on. He's, he's sucked into that San Francisco abyss. I give him a 13 in character. Jason, this is going to surprise you, but I went significantly higher. If you look at his background, his parents met at anti-war demonstrations in the 60s. So mm. it, it kind of reminds me of uh, family, uh, well, the family ties with Michael J. Fox, uh, except he actually ended up becoming uh, what his parents were. So, and this is in his blood. This is part of his DNA. And I actually think he's very sincere about what he says. Uh, we don't have to agree with it. But I gave him a 20 for character because I, I actually think he's staying in character. And, he, and, and he's been a pretty good guy throughout his career. Mm. So based off your theory, then my parents probably met at a buffet. Uh, <laughs> and maybe that explains. <laughs> you said it. I don't know if that's me. true or not. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. My mom's probably pissed as hell right now. All right, authenticity. Uh, I gave him an eight. I don't believe, and again, I did not know about his parents being anti-war people, so maybe I'm a little low here on the authenticity. Maybe he is being authentic, but I gave him an eight for authenticity. You know, I'm going to go high again. Uh, as much as I disagree with what he's doing to a certain degree, he is authentic. This is what he is and I respect the fact that on Memorial Day, he could at least say, you know what, let's pay homage to those who have served our country. And knowing that you can't please everybody all the time, for him to do that, I actually thought it showed something. I actually gave him, I believe, a 20 in terms of authenticity. All right, it factor. This I did go a little high here, uh, you know. In baseball, it's really hard to get any attention. He's gotten some here. <laughs> so uh, I got to give him credit for that. So I'll, I'll give him a 19 in it factor. Now, this is interesting. I was going to go a little bit higher because he's always had it. He, he was a very telegenic guy based on the way he was built. It was really into fitness. But but this here, I, look, I'm, I, this is where my personal bias does get involved. I, I think this is falling flat. I think the anytime you make gestures if you're early you make a buzz at this point it's just another guy making an empty gesture i don't think there's anything more ineffective nowadays than modern day activism for, or whatever you want to call it so i gave him a 10. uh steve uh you've got him at 70 in a grease fire uh i have him at 59 uh candlelit uh, I'm going to let you go, but I want to take care of some business before I let you guys go. Patriot Mobile, just because the Biden administration paused their creation of disinformation, uh, it doesn't mean the fight is over. Across the country, free speech, religious liberty, and your constitutional rights are under constant attack, which is why I'm proud to support Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, and their 100% U.S.-based customer support team provides exceptional customer support. Go to patriotmobile.com Jason or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with the offer code Jason, veterans and 
first responders save even more. So make the switch today. We've proven that when we stick together and make our voice heard, we can make a difference. So join us to make the switch today. PatriotMobile.com slash Jason, PatriotMobile.com slash Jason, or call 972-PATRIOT. You know this is the perfect thing to do for those of us that are in the fearless army. Support a mobile service that supports you and our beliefs. Uh, uh, before I go, because I didn't let Steve participate in this, uh, I, I wanted to make one comment about Jimmy Butler and that shot last night, or Sunday night, in the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. A lot of conversation about, hey, uh, Jimmy should, at the very end, he had it, they were down to about 17, 15 seconds left. He takes a pull-up three-pointer uh, in transition. Why didn't he Why didn't he go for two? That's all they needed to tie the game. Why did he rush the shot? He did it because he's tired. He played the entire game. He knew that if they went to overtime, they had no shot because he was their only shot and he was out of gas. They rolled Jimmy Butler until the wheels fell off. And he knew the wheels were falling off, so he tried to take a three-pointer to end the game. Didn't work out. Smart call on his point, on his part. Pull up tape, be the hero, because if he got, went to overtime, they were going to get killed. They didn't have the horses to really stick with Boston. All right, I like the Celtics in these series against the Warriors. I like it going seven. I like defense over offense. Wouldn't be surprised if Golden State won, but I cannot root for Steve Kerr. Can't do it. All right. That's tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. It's my obligation to hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. Raise up your hands for freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be.